the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, today we're talking with squadron leader John Truckee Carr. Now, Truckee joined the RAAF in 1967 and trained as an armament fitter. He then served in 481 Maintenance Squadron, two operational conversion units, 75th Squadron Butterworth and Kingswood Armament Depot. In 1974, he joined 92 Pilots Course and then completed 31 Mirage Course. He was posted to 3 Squadron Malaysia, including time as a photo recce pilot. In 1978, it was back to Williamtown on mirages, including an ejection after shrapnel damaged his aircraft. Between 1980 and 1986, he trained to be a fighter combat instructor and ended up with the United States Navy on exchange posting as a FA-18 Hornet instructor, including time operating on the aircraft carrier USS Kitty Hawk. That's the second of the Kitty Hawk uh, ships. In essence, his time with the US Navy led to him being the first Australian F-18 Hornet instructor. To keep the contrast in his life alive from 1986 to 2013, he was a pilot with Qantas on the 747, 767 and A330s, experiencing a very unusual but life-saving rescue. He became a check and training captain and he is now also an advocate, which we may have time to talk about throughout the day. You have a very interesting career. Why did you join the RAAF back in 1967? Because I wanted to fly. The motivation for that, believe it or not, was a, um, a recruiting crew that came around to my school in New England and um, they showed pictures of um, pilots training and the Sabre and I thought that's what I want to do. So you finished year 10 went straight into the Air Force? Yes, as, a, as an apprentice, did two and a half years engineering apprenticeship and then after I graduated I then matriculated here and applied for pilot's course. Fair enough and that was an as an armament fitter? Yes. What was that role? You train at Wagga, um, it's a two and a half year apprenticeship, yep. but uh, arming the aircraft, <clears throat> looking after all the armour systems, the ejection seats, which I used subsequently. Yeah, so. we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> so you know your own handiwork, it actually yes, paid yes, off. Yes, yes, I'm probably one of the, I'm, I don't know, there might have been someone else, but I don't know many other armoured fitters that have ejected and actually used the seat, but um, <laughs> it worked. That's as an apprentice. Now, obviously, after the two years, you're no longer an apprentice. Does that then put you full-time into the RAF as a non-apprentice? Yes, an armament fitter then. Um, And that's what I went to 481 Squadron as an armament fitter, uh, an LAC. Yes. And then from there, I went to OCU, the same, and working on the flight line, arming aircraft, uh, that sort of stuff. And then to Butterworth, the the same task. As an armament fitter, does that mean all of the the arms on an aircraft you're responsible for looking after and fitting? Is that is that am I right? Yes. So the rockets, the the, the bullets, the, the yes. ejection seat, the missiles, the yes. whole sh- shebang. Yes. No. So you're at Butterworth and Kingswood, 481 Squadron, uh, 2OCU, and uh, Seven Squadron. Was it Seven Squadron or Seven Five Squadron? 
as a as an armoured yeah. fitter, seventy five squadron in Malaysia. Yeah. Okay, what was that experience like in Malaysia? Was good. It was good. I enjoyed it. We um we lived on Penang. I was married, and um, we commuted from Penang to the mainland at Butterworth. And uh, I think just about everyone who did that tour up there enjoyed it. No I've got to ask the right. question: How did you get the nickname Trucky? Well, I tried to ditch it, but um, <laughs> I got it at school. Really? My name is uh, surname's Car, and some car trucks. Some yeah. some smart aleck. Well, you can see the connection. Yeah. Your decision to join the pilots course in 1974 was motivated by what? Well, as I said, when I applied to join the Air Force, um, I wanted to fly, and that was because of that recruiting video that I t- or the yep, recruiting yep. team. And um, as soon as I finished my apprenticeship, I did my matric, as I said. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I finished my matric, I had the qualifications and I applied for pilot's course. Fantastic. So you got in in 1974. What were you flying during the course? Uh, you start on Windjills, uh, Point Cook, then Mackey's at Pierce, and then back to Williamtown for the introductory fighter course, which is now on Hawks, but then yeah. it was Mackey's, and then uh, the Mirage course, and then to Butterworth. Uh, I've been told by a, a previous interviewee that the Windjills were very, very cumbersome things to fly, and if you pass that, you could pass anything. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I um, That's probably true. I remember one particular... When I ejected, I damaged my back, crushed two vertebrae. Oh. So um, I was out of... I was not allowed to fly an ejection seat aircraft for a certain period of time. Were you able to ever fly an ejection plane again? Yes, oh, yes. Okay. But there was a period while, the, while that healed where I wasn't allowed to, so they posted me to Forflight, which was the windshield forward air control flight here right? to fly the windjill, which was a good deal for me. And so I went back to the windjill after being a gun mirage pilot and um, it was a very humbling experience. <laughs> <laughs> Why was it so difficult? Was it just... Oh, it's just, a, it's just an honest, basic aeroplane, you know, and it's a tail wheel aeroplane, um, tail dragger, which is... Um, what is that? Well... I think you have to fly to know that, but the tail wheel locks and unlocks, and so you have to. It's just interesting, and, okay. and it's got okay. a big radial engine, which yours when you, when you apply power. And um, I thought the Mirage after the Windjill was a lot easier to fly. I enjoyed the Windjill too; it was just hard, and the Mirage was obviously a step up. At Butterworth, you were on a um, photo recce course. That was only a minor part of it. What, um, what did that involve? We had an Intel unit up there, mm-hmm. and so um, we we had photo wrecking noses fitted to some of the aircraft some of the time. And um, some of the pilots, I think there were three or four of us, were trained to operate the cameras and um, just, just do stuff for the um, Intel officers. Dutton, weapons and range, mirage ejection. What happened to cause you to use your own equipment that you were developing to eject. Tell us the story. It was a um, 10 degree bombing pass, 500 foot, 450 knot release. And the bomb was a Mark 82, 500 pound high drag bomb, which has fins that open. Yes. Like a shuttlecock. Yes. Um, So when you release the bomb, the fins open and it provides separation from you when the bomb goes off. There's a fragmentation envelope, I think if it's about a 2,500-foot dome, I can, I'm not quite sure. Mm. But So this provides separation from you when the bomb 
when the uh, from the blast envelope yes. as you separate. Now, if those fins don't open, the bomb comes off the aeroplane with the same velocity, basically, as you, but it doesn't slow down. So when it detonates, you're in the fragmentation envelope. The fins didn't open, and um, it frag fragged the envelope, frag fragged the engine. I'm sorry, and um, the engine seized. And so you had to eject. Yes. At how many? What knots? How many knots were you? Oh, been? the um, the I probably, if you release at 450, you're probably doing about 470 when you bottom out at about three, four hundred feet. Sure. But um, the the procedure for ejection. This was a long time ago, mind you, 40 years ago, was something like 10 degrees nose up and um, try and get the engine back and try and establish, if you can, relight or what the problems are and um, slow down. So the plane has to be in an upward spiral to make the actual ejection? Yes and no. There's a, there's, the seat is capable of, you could eject then if you had to, but obviously it's safer if you're slower and higher. Right. So you convert that energy that you've got at, at 450 knots at 500 feet into, well, in my case, it was 230 mm. knots at 3,500 feet. When did the damage to your vertebrae occur? In the actual ejection process? Yes, yeah, yes. It wasn't uncommon. That ejection seat was eventually replaced um, with a rocket-powered seat, but that original OM4 ejection seat had cartridges in it, like cartridges the size of your, your fist, two cartridges, and they would fire like almost simultaneously. One would fire and then as the seat rose up the rail, the other would fire, but that was just like that. So yep. you basically got... And the a, cockpit... The canopy, the went, canopy first. went first. Yes, yes. And then the seat went up the rails and um, and that deployed a parachute in the seat and then you fell out of the seat. It was all automatic. It was. It's, um, is there training for that sort of eventuality? Yes, there is, yeah. There's a... There's a a simulator, ejection seat simulator at Point Cook, but obviously they don't give you a full charge because a lot of people who who did that um, ejection in that old cartridge seat hurt their back. Um, so they don't, they didn't want to be training at Point Cook and, and breaking everyone's back, obviously. So no, it was, I think not. it was about a quarter charge or something okay. like that. If we jump to 1980 now to 1982, you become a fighter combat. You did the fighter combat instructor course. Yes. What did that involve? Uh, that was the same year that I ejected, actually. Really? So, yes. So I, as soon as I finished on the windshield and I was able to fly, the middle of that year is when the fighter combat instructor course started. That's that's the. Um, well, it's a fighter combat instructor course. You're supposed to lead the squadron to war and, all, and you, you're supposed to make sure the squadron is operational or to, to assist in that. And um, the course is quite involved. It was the toughest course I've ever done. How did you get involved in the US Marine Exchange? Well, I applied for it. When the decision was made to buy the Hornet, when the decision was made, they decided to start up an exchange so that when the aircraft arrived here, there'd be someone with experience on it. Now, the aircraft was a Navy Marine aircraft. The Air Force didn't have it. The so, US Air Force didn't have it? No, no. they still they never did. And um, so they had to start an Air Force-Navy exchange. I knew that was coming up and I applied for it and I got it. And the squadron I went to, not now, but then, the CO was Navy, the XO was Marine, every second instructor was Marine or Navy, so it was 50-50. 
and um, though it's every second course that came through was marine and or the navy. camaraderie across those they're, they're very good very good there's there's healthy rivalry i'd say <clears throat> in the bar and in the air how would you not in a negative way but how would you compare <clears throat> the operational techniques and personnel in the RAAF with the American flyers that you worked with and the Marines you worked with? Uh, it's a question I've been asked a number of times um, and it's pretty easy to answer. We're fighter pilots are fighter pilots and uh, Navy and Marine fighter pilots are very similar to us. Um, we have them on exchange here. They handle, handle it very well. They have a good reputation. We have a really good reputation with them. It's a big system uh, mm. to, uh, to compared to ours. It's a very large system. You know, the, the squadron I was in over there, the instructional squadron, had 50 aircraft and 50 instructors. What about the reverse view? Uh, what do you feel the American fighter... I know a fighter pilot is a fighter pilot, but what, what's your feedback from them about an Australian who's involved with them? We've always uh, had a very good reputation with them. They send FCIs and QFIs over there who have who have a lot of experience, and um, I think our our um, postings people vet them fairly closely. Mm. Uh, I think if you did anything wrong, you'd be home in a heartbeat, and so they look at you very closely before they send you over there. And from what I've heard, everyone over there has a very good reputation. The thing that always fascinates me is an aircraft carrier and planes on an aircraft carrier, both taking off but more especially landing. Now, you were posted, or you spent some time on the USS Kitty Hawk, which is a very famous, was a very famous aircraft carrier. What was that like, and did you fly from it? Yes, so when I was over there, I I was not sea-based, I was land-based. It was a squadron very similar to OCU, actually. It's, it's a training squadron. And the last phase of instruct the instruction was in phases like uh, initial phase ground attack air to air navigation and then the last phase was carrier call which i was not involved in because i'd never been to the carrier but for those people to get their wings they have to qualify on the carrier before they get their wings they saw me over there and and they asked me if i wanted to go to the carrier as a favor and um i could hardly say no because i'd look bad and fighter pilots know it's better to be dead than look bad so um so I said, yes, I'd like to go out, and um, I had no priority. So a few times I went out to the carrier, but I, I held above it, and the students had priority, and they sent me home. I think that happened at about, about six times, various carriers, not just the Kitty Hawk. And eventually um, I got to land on it, and I think I did about six or seven. It's a very small landing area when you first see it, and especially if you're looking down at it from 35,000 feet. Yeah, it's, it's this it's very small size of your fingernail. Yeah, yeah, it's not very big. Their operation is very good, um, very, um, very disciplined. You're in, not in the wire for very long, and um, you're out because there's someone probably about 35, 45 seconds behind you. Mm-hmm. So you have to get away. If that wire doesn't work, you, you, you keep going. Yes, the crew on the deck of a carrier. It's a pretty dangerous place to work if you think about it. If you think about all the all the jet engines operating, um, it's not a docile place. You know, the ship's moving. The ship could be doing about 30 knots. There could be 20 knots of, 15 knots of wind over the deck, so it's windy. It could also be tossing. It could, it, it's a big ship, though. You don't notice that, that that much, but it's quite dangerous with all those aircraft operating in a confined space. Mm. You were the first Australian Hornet instructor there. Was that is that correct? Yes, I, I started my course in 
November 82. You, really, trucky, are the benchmark for what Americans view Australians are, the Marines, what Australians are and what they like at instructing. You're it. You're the first one. Air Force. Air Force, yes. Yes, yes. You decide to leave the Air Force. Why and when? Um, there were a couple of reasons. So basically it was family family security. Yep. I did a career prospects interview um, and I amplified because my son was just starting high school and because we'd been at Williamtown, we'd been in Malaysia, we'd been in Williamtown um, and we'd been with the US Navy and my son had been in five different schools in his six years of primary yeah, school yeah. and he was about to start high school and I amplified and I said, can you please not send me to Tyndall or to Canberra? I'd just like to stay at Williamtown. I don't care what you do with me. Um, and they, my career prospects said, uh, you're probably going to be exo at Tyndall or go to Staff College. So I thought, um, okay. I'll, re- I'll retire. <laughs> I'll retire. Yeah. You, you then, obviously, mate, as a, as a fighter pilot, you've got all the qualifications. You join Qantas. Yes. Getting into Qantas, how hard or easy was that? Yeah, I had to go through all the steps that everyone else did, all the general aviation people did and um, all the other Air Force people. They don't give you any priority for being a fighter pilot. In fact, it was a bit of a disadvantage because they prefer people who know the, um, and I can understand this, the um, the GA system or multi-engine, multi-crew people. Fighter pilots are individuals, are individuals and they yeah. fly by themselves. So I think transport pilots are probably a bit more suited to the role. I don't think it's that much of an advantage over the general okay. aviation All people right. that they... Let's go to the planes themselves then. Uh, you have mirages, windshields, uh, hornets, etc. A 747's jolly much bigger than any of those and you've got a lot of pe- passengers behind you. You have, yeah. And you've got a co-pilot and you've got an air stewardess and all those things. Yes, yeah. What was that like? It was interesting. It was a learning experience for me. Um, as I said, I'd been sitting by myself all the time, and um, now it's a it's a crew coordination and cockpit resources management, they call it, that, that sort of stuff going on, and um, you have to get used to that, but they train you for that. Um, I remember one of the questions they asked me, do you have any problems with females? Would you have a problem if your captain was a lady? And I said, so the lady is the cap- the captain is a lady? And he said, yes, and I said, no, she's the captain. He said, good, that's the right answer. Flying a 747, what does that feel like? I mean, it, to me, it would be like driving a bus. No, no, it's – um. I actually, my time on a 747 was a second, a second officer. So I flew the simulator, I flew it in the air, but legally, as a second officer, you're not allowed to do a takeoff and landing. Okay. So only in the simulator. So I flew it, and it was, was quite – Nice to fly. They're, they're quite easy to fly, actually. They, if you trim them out, they're fine. You know. They... Uh, you were in seven four seven, seven six sevens, and A three thirties. How did the, at just as a pilot, how do they compare? I like the seven six seven. Why? What? What's special about the seven six seven? I don't. I spent a long time on it, so I knew it very well. Um, I trained as a first officer and a captain and a training captain on the seven six seven. So I did seventeen years on that aircraft. And I only did eight years on the 330 and two years on the jumbo, so I knew it better. Um, nicer to fly. The jumbo was easier to fly. The 767 was um, better so, to fly. Just on that point, what makes one plane... The in- jumbo was very stable. It just didn't deviate from where it, where you put it. It stayed there. Was most of the time then in autopilot or you... Yes, fl- yeah, that's the, that's the airline procedure. 
to use well if you're in cruise you're in autopilot you don't want to be deviating from altitude um or from your air route because um it's, it's dangerous dangerous yeah i've done the research research on it and i can't find the name of the pilot i'm now talking to him the name of the pilot involved but in 2010 june of that year you're involved in a very important rescue of abby sunderland yes yeah and all of the research, all of the information online says Quant- a Qantas pilot. Oh, okay. It doesn't actually use your name, which I want to now correct. What happened? Because it was a long way away from Perth where you set out from. It was where she was. If you have a look at the the boundary between Australian, I think they call it area of responsibility, is that correct? The search area of responsibility. Yes. And between here and Africa, it then goes to France. Yes, so she, where she had her problem was right on the border, which is 2,200 miles from Perth, but the drift was such that she was, she was drifting in, into our, area, our, of our res- area. area of responsibility, although it was further from Perth than it was from Africa and Madagascar. It was our area of responsibility. Someone who doesn't know 2010, who was Abby? What, what, what happened? Well, I was uh, on a what they call a pattern, a flying pattern. So I think I'd been um, Sydney, Perth, Perth, Singapore, Singapore, Perth, and then the next day I was supposed to go Perth, Sydney home. So it was like a six-day, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. I can't remember. And it was about um, four o'clock in the morning. I was in the hotel in Perth. I was due to fly out at midday. And um, the phone went and they said, have you heard about Abigail Sunderland? And I said, no, I haven't. Well, this is the story. She was, um, she's a 16-year-old girl yes. around the world in a small 10-metre boat. boat called um, Wild Eyes. There was a major storm in the area and the um, emergency beacon operated. And that's all we know. Um, they said we would, the Air Force don't have resources and um, We've, Qantas has been requested to send an aircraft. We have an aircraft that's not being used, an A330, and we have a crew that's not being used, you. And they said, we'd like you to go and see if you can find her. That's got to be the most difficult challenge you could possibly face. How was, did you find her? It was interesting. So the beacon was still operating, but the signal was corrupted. But you could still hear the beacon, and so we still knew the range, and we still had a general area of plus or minus mm. five miles. So the problem was getting down below the cloud base, um, getting weather information, uh, getting uh, altimeter settings, um, and finding her. But uh, you did you could you didn't want to be too low because your horizontal view was not too good. Yes. So, so the the altitude we selected was just below the cloud base. Uh, the problem was that once we found her, you have to think about the fact that you can't just find her and stay there because the aeroplane's doing about 220 knots and there's 50 knots of wind. So you can't, you know, you just can't stay there. You've got to just keep coming back and find her every pass. When I saw the water in the, the sea state, I thought, you poor girl, you know, right out here in the middle of nowhere and, and um, this terrible conditions in a small boat, I didn't think we'd find her. And um, so I was basically hanging onto the aircraft and trying to fly and fly as accurately as I could while everyone else searched. And um, on the first pass, one of the spotters said, contact. And I said something along the lines of um, bullshit. And the sergeant tapped me on the shoulder and said, no, Captain, they're trained 
not to say that unless they're positive. And the, they had seen her on the first path. The boat came out of the water. Brave little girl. We actually pinpointed her position precisely and they had, they had drift calculations and um, really there's not much else you can do. We had to calculate how much fuel we needed to get back to Perth. Well, on these podcasts for the RAAF and its centenary celebrations, let me correct the, all of the internet information. Squadron leader John Truckee Carr was the pilot in the Qantas A330 that was chartered to go and find Abigail, and if it hadn't been for this pilot and this plane, then perhaps Abigail may not have been found. So the fact that she's still with us is because of the training that Australia gives all of its pilots. Squadron leader Truckee... Thank you for your time and thank you for what you've done for Australia. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.